Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ will never, ever lose its power. No matter what happens on this earth, his blood is the strength and the power that we need. Praise his holy name. It is wonderful to see you all out here on this rainy Sunday, move up your clock Sunday morning. So great to have you all here this morning. And we are here this weekend. It's a special weekend emphasis. We call it Faith Promise. And uh, some of you may wonder what that means. It really means, what do I promise in faith that God might challenge me to do to give towards missions? And at the end of the service today, there's a little blue card in your, in your bulletin. You'll see that little blue card. We're going to talk to you about the needs of, <clears throat> of reaching out in missions. You see, this church has a great history of reaching out around the world to tell people about Jesus Christ. We have missionaries that have come right from this congregation. We have Ryan and Emily Walker. Emily Schmidt grew up in this church her whole life, and today she and her husband are serving as missionaries way out on the outskirts of Alaska, and uh, we want to keep praying for Ryan and Emily Walker, our missionaries from this church. Jill Riggins, her father, used to pastor this church. She grew up here in this church, and she and her husband, Scott, and their two little boys are out in Papua New Guinea, and God has sent them out from this congregation, and we praise God for that. And the Wades are here today, all the way from Africa. They're here on vacation, and they were in the first service this morning, and they are missionaries from this congregation. So this congregation has done a lot to reach out around the world. And so today, we talk about missions, and we talk about what God may be challenging us to do. What is our response? You know, God tells some of us that we are to pray, and and some of you were here last evening, and we had an entire time of simply praying for our missionaries. Sometimes God says, I need you to give. And and today we're going to talk about that because you see, we can't send missionaries and do the work around the world if we don't give. And then God might say, I need you to go. You see, this year, our verse for the year, Pastor Chuck has been talking to us about, it's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Today we also have missionaries with us from Africa. They're at the South Campus this morning. They're going to be back here tonight at the North Campus. They're going to share with us what God is doing in their lives. They've served in Haiti. They've served in Africa. I would ask you to come back and be supportive of the Crawfords tonight and be supportive enough that you might think to bring your checkbook. I know you young people don't have any of those, but think about that. And uh, <laughs> and think about coming back tonight and being supportive of them. And, and we're going to give them a love offering tonight to tell them thank you for what you are doing in your work and your ministry. You see, God is calling people all over the world. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Chuck and I met uh, a number of years ago in Kansas City. He had come to go to seminary and I was attending college. We met at our church. It's a long story, but we finally got together. And, uh, and both of us felt that God had called us to ministry. We couldn't really totally define exactly what that looked like. Well, he felt like it was pastoral ministry, and I thought, well, that's great. I want to serve alongside of him. And and, uh, we talked about that type of ministry. We felt that God had called us to serve in America, and uh, that's what we felt that we were to do. But um, it was in the mid-1980s when God called us 
to go to Austin, Texas. Now, we often joke about that and refer to it as our first cross-cultural experience. We did not know that we were moving to another country, but if you've ever been to Texas, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Um, It was quite an experience for this young couple. We had no children. We went down there to interview with the people there from that church. We were very young and skinny at the time. And uh, we had our interview with them, and they looked at us, and they said, My, you are so young. And we really were. The district superintendent who was organizing this interview told us, he said, This church is a great opportunity. Now, let me just tell you, if you're a young person going into the ministry, let me just warn you, if you ever hear that, this is a great opportunity. That means this church is about to die, but you could have a really good time ministering here. Um, So, you know, it was a great opportunity to go down there to Austin, Texas. They actually showed us the, the, the minutes and said, you know, this church has been running about 60 to 70 in morning worship and and stuff. So we, we felt that God called us and we followed the call and we moved to Austin, Texas. And that very first Sunday, I mean, everybody showed up to see that new pastor, all 30 people packed into that church. And, uh, and there they were. And we had a great morning with those 30 people in our little church in Austin, Texas. And after that morning worship service, some of the kids came up to, to Pastor Chuck and they said, Pastor Chuck, where's our dollar? And he said, what do you mean? And they said, well, the other pastor used to give us a dollar for coming to Sunday school. Are you going to pay us to come to Sunday school? And he said, I, I don't pay people to come to church. So we had a rousing 20 people at church the second Sunday. It was a great opportunity, let me tell you. The first month that we were there was quite the challenge. You know, the board, if you can imagine, was pretty much the entire congregation. And uh, we had been there one week. We got a phone call, and one of the board members had been arrested for flashing. So we lost him, too. And um, <clears throat> that's the truth. Then we, the next week, we had another board member whose wife ran off, and, and, and it just started that way. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting. It was a great opportunity. <laughs> We finally learned that four other people had interviewed to go to that church, and they had seen the parsonage, and after seeing the parsonage, they had all turned it down. We were young and naive enough that we didn't know you could actually do that. Um, (laughs) But we didn't want to. We didn't feel that way. Um, The parsonage, they tried hard to clean it up and paint it and fix it up just a little bit, and and it was really, it was an okay house. They did have to change the stove and, and... And the previous pastor's wife, bless her heart, she never really knew how to clean a stove, I guess, so she would just add more layers of aluminum foil. And um, they couldn't clean it, so they had to take it and throw it away and get another one to put in there before we moved in. Um, And I said, it's okay, God. You have called us to Austin, Texas. I am willing to be here. But the one thing I really struggled with was the refrigerator. I said, God, I can take this place, but the refrigerator's a struggle for me. The refrigerator was copper with turquoise interior. I think it had been around since about 1950. The entire interior of it, the wall on the side, every single shelf was missing, but they had replaced it with duct tape. So you had silver duct tape and turquoise. It was really nice. There were no shelves inside it whatsoever. We had to buy rubber-made things, and we could stack things up, and it would just fill up with water all the time. And and I did. It was a matter of prayer. I said, God... You know, this is okay. We're down here in this other country of Texas, and uh, I'm just praying for the refrigerator. And actually, after about two months, I came home one day with my hands full of groceries, and literally the thing shook, took its last breath, and just croaked right there. And and I said, thank you, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
So bless his heart, our church treasurer, who became one of our very, very dear friends, he pretty much ran the whole church. We had to call Warren up and tell him, Warren, we're really sorry, the refrigerator died. He called back a couple hours later. He says, don't worry, I found another one for 20 bucks. (laughs) And I thought, oh, good, Warren, what did you find for 20 bucks? But believe it or not, it was somebody who wanted to donate it sort of to the church and just took $20 for it. And actually, it was a lovely refrigerator, and I praised God for that. That church, it was a great opportunity. Seriously, we were actually so excited about our call that none of that mattered. We were so happy there. We were in the center of God's will. We stayed in that city of Austin for five years, and during that time, God did amazing things in that little congregation. People were getting saved on a regular basis, and soon we were actually busting out of that little building. We had to have two services. We had to rent facilities in a strip mall, and it was just exciting seeing what God was doing, and it really was a great opportunity. But it was in October of 1991. Now we had two little girls. They were two and four years old, and we took off and went to an evangelism conference in Fort Worth, Texas. The very week that we were gone, our church was buying a new parsonage to move us into. They thought it was about time to get us out of that place where we were and find something else. We went up to Fort Worth, Texas, and we were having a great time learning more ways that we could be more effective in our church where we were there in Austin. And uh, we were just re- rejoicing in that. I remember we were talking about things that we could do and everything. And right before the last service, the last night, before we could get into the service, the director of the World Mission Department of the Church of the Nazarene caught us out in the hallway. We barely knew this man. And he said, could I have a few minutes of your time and talk to you? I said, okay. And he began to talk to us. This was 1991. The coup had just happened in Russia about two months previously. He had just been on a trip to Russia and to Romania and to Albania, and he began to tell us about all these places that he had visited. And he and I are looking at each other going, what is he talking to us about, you know? And he goes on and on and on about his recent trip, and we're going, well, that's really nice. Glad you enjoyed it, you know? Well, he gets to the end of this conversation, and he says, here's the deal. He said, we as the Church of the Nazarene never, ever thought that the Berlin Wall was going to fall down. We never planned to send missionaries behind the Iron Curtain. And we don't have anybody prepared to go. And he said, I have been praying ever since my trip. God, what are we supposed to do? Who should go behind the Iron Curtain? And he said, my wife and I sat behind the two of you in the service last night. And he said, God just nudged me and said, that's who's supposed to move to Russia. (laughs) He said, would you take a month and pray about moving to Russia? Our church was closing on the new parsonage that day. And uh, he left us, and we walked the streets of Fort Worth that night, literally just sobbing. We were so humbled and so overwhelmed to think that God would want us to move to Russia. But, you know, we had answered a call a long time ago. It wasn't specifically a call to missions. We just said, God, here we are, send us. We thought that meant to America. God said, I want you to go to the former Soviet Union, and we packed up our little girls, and we left. You know, people have always said, you know, tell us about your call to missions, and we always respond, we don't have one. (laughs) We just have a call to serve God wherever it is that he wants us at that point in time. So whether it's in Austin, Texas, or in Moscow, Russia, or Fort Wayne, Indiana, 
It's following the call that says, here am I, send me. So out we go. But I tell you what, we went out into a radically different world than missionaries had ever stepped out into before. The world of missions has changed drastically. You know, you used to hear about the old days that people would get on the boats and they would take three months on the steamership getting over to that other country and they'd head off into the deep, dark depths of Africa. And that is not the world that we live in today. Our world has changed. There are new issues that we have to deal with in our world today. We have issues of massive poverty and ghettos. We had a privilege as we served over there in the former Soviet Union that we worked with much of the whole Eurasia region, and we got to travel to many parts of Eurasia. I'll never forget the night we had spent a train all night. We'd gone from New Delhi to Calcutta, India. We arrived in the morning in Calcutta, and we were about to get off the train, and they had warned us about getting off the train. They said, when you arrive in Calcutta, you will be overwhelmed by the poverty that you see in Calcutta. And they said, when you step off the train, they said, there are children that are living in the train station and they are hungry. And the children will come and they will try and get food from you. And they said, but you cannot give them anything. Because if you feed one, you will start a riot and you do not have enough to take care of what would happen. So you cannot feed them. And we stepped off the train that morning and I was just overwhelmed. My heart broke as hundreds of children surrounded us, filthy, dirty little children sleeping in the train station. And they would pull on your clothes and and look up at you and do this. We live in a new world with new challenges, huge challenges. And as we drove down the streets of Calcutta, I noticed all the people simply living on the streets and and people who had built homes out of black plastic. And then I discovered you were lucky if you had black plastic because a lot of people are just simply living under the underpass. And I'm talking hundreds of people and families and, and just literally seeing people stretched out sleeping on the sides of the street. Our world has changed. We have new challenges and we have new issues. We also have ecological issues that we have to deal with in our world today. It doesn't take you very long to be in Ukraine to discover that most people have a Chernobyl story. I think we forget about it, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. But for our friends in Kiev, to recall the nuclear disaster of Chernobyl is so traumatic that most of them won't talk about it. It's like trying to talk about an experience you may have had in war or in prison. You just want to move on with life, and you just don't even want to discuss it. But one night, I was traveling all night on a train in Ukraine, and I had a group of Ukrainian doctors with me, and we were heading to another country to do medical, um, medical visits down there. They were my dear friends, and in the middle of the night, they began to tell me their Chernobyl story. And we sat there and we wept together as they began to tell me what that was like. You know, the huge nuclear disaster happened, but the government didn't want to tell anybody what had happened. They lived 60 miles away from that nuclear reactor that had blown up. And it took the government about three days to even do anything about it. They weren't sure what to do. Do we just hide it or now do we do something? Finally, they decided that they would enact an evacuation plan that they would do in the event that Kiev itself was attacked with a nuclear, nuclear um, attack. 
And so they didn't really tell the people what they were doing. The children all went off to school that day. If you can just imagine this, kids, they went off to school that day not knowing that the government was going to evacuate them. They had nothing with them. The kids arrived at school, and all the buses showed up, loaded up all the children, and began to ship them outside of the city. The parents didn't know their children were being taken away. They didn't know where their children were going. The kids didn't know where they were going. There were no cell phones. I mean, what are you going to do? And they began to take their children out of the city. The adults began to understand what was going on. And they would go to the schools and say, tell me at least what city my child is going to. And the parents got in all the vehicles that they could get into, and it became a massive traffic jam like what you saw with Hurricane Katrina when people tried to leave there. Everybody trying to leave Kiev for whatever this disaster is that we don't even know what it is. The government's not even telling us much about it. And they would sit in traffic and and try and get out of the city, and they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how long they would be away. They didn't know if they'd ever get to come home. Everybody running and leaving. Our world has changed. The ecological damage done in the former Soviet Union, I have to tell you, is absolutely beyond our comprehension. The Soviets wanted to prove that they were greater than God. They were atheists. They weren't going to believe in God. And so by saying that they were greater than God, they believed that they could control nature. They tried to reverse the flow of one of the major rivers in the Soviet Union just to prove their point. They also would purposely grow crops that you shouldn't grow in one part of the country just to prove that they were better than God. So in one part of the country, they began to grow corn where they should never have been growing corn. To get the corn to grow, they had to create a lot of irrigation. So they began to drain the major river in that area to do for irrigation. Then they poured a bunch of chemicals on those, that corn, and those chemicals drained back into the river that did not have much water in it anymore. It now drained down to the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea, which used to be a large body of water, has shrunk so much that now the chemicals lay open around the Aral Sea. And today, the RLC has the greatest number of birth defects of children of any place in the world. What has man done to our world? And just to make it a little bit scarier, the Russians decided that they would store their anthrax spores in a vault in an island on the RLC. But the water has evaporated so much that you can now walk to the island where the anthrax spores are stored. Our world, it has changed. I was standing on the balcony at the Browning's apartment in Jerusalem. Some of you know Lyndall and Kay Browning. They grew up here in Indiana, and they've been serving in the Middle East for most of their lives. But as I looked out of their balcony, there in the distance was a very ugly concrete wall being built, a wall pretty much as high as the walls here of this church. And I could see it cutting across the countryside, and I could see the big caterpillar earth movers as they were preparing more space to put up more of these concrete walls. We used to travel to, uh, to Bethlehem with the Brownings. It was no big deal. It was about a 15-minute drive to go from Jerusalem over to Bethlehem. And in the past, yes, that's traveling into Palestinian territory, and there would be a little tiny stop on the way, but that was no big deal. Well, the last time that we were there, as we went to cross that border area, suddenly it was a huge deal, and there was a huge border crossing, and all these people with machine guns and weapons, and they came up to our car, and they wanted to check our documents. We had to all prove who we were and where we were going. And there in front of us stood that ugly, ugly wall, razor wire everywhere, 
And after we had done our documents, they allowed us to travel into the Palestinian territory, which is where Bethlehem is. Bethlehem, the place of Jesus' birth. It used to be a place where all the tourists would come from all over the world and you could go visit the churches and all these people would be there and souvenirs being sold and all of a sudden it's just a dead and dying place as these people have to live behind the wall. Their businesses are destroyed. People are scared to go there. You see, today we live in a world that is torn apart by war. Humanity is suffering on both sides of the fence. Just imagine the children that have to live in the midst of war, day in and day out. World War II was a horrible incident for the former Soviet Union. They estimate around 40 million people died in World War II. That's almost unfathomable for us, isn't it? Everywhere you go in the former Soviet Union, there's a memorial to World War II, and you understand why. When girls get married, you go and you have your picture taken at the World War II memorial. We asked them why, and they said that's because all the men died in the war, and so we go there to have our picture taken to remember that we had a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather. Children having to live in the midst of war. It was in the midst of World War II that a Russian child wrote this song. What's important to a child? May there always be sunshine. May there always be blue skies. May there always be mama. May there always be me. Our world has changed. We often used to travel to Moscow's Shiryamechivo Airport, the main international airport at the north end of the city of Moscow. And soon after the turn of the century, something drastic began to happen on that road up to the airport. It was a little unnerving the first time we went up there and we saw a minibus pull up on the side of the road and unload 15 young ladies and have them line up on the side of the road. You see, it was a blatant sex trade happening out in the open in broad daylight on our streets. But it didn't end there. It didn't end with a 15-passenger bus. Soon it became a school-sized bus as they unloaded more girls up on the street. And then it became multiple buses until on an average drive to the airport, it would literally make me sick as there would be hundreds, if not a thousand young women lining the street to be sold. The girls were from small towns all across the former Soviet Union. The economy had collapsed so much that everybody was broke. They needed to make some money for their families and somehow they thought that this was the way that they could do it. Well, I thought at least we live on the other side of town. It hasn't affected there. It had affected up on the north side of town. But little did I know that soon it would hit our part of the town. As the sun would set at night, the masters who would market the human flesh would bring out their products. And our neighborhood would be changed as nearly a 100 young women would be lined up at the end of our street to be sold. And my little girls would see this every day. And they would ask their mommy and their daddy, What are we as Christians supposed to do about this? And I remember that summer that we were back in America and my little girls 
would tell people that they were collecting money to buy Bibles for the girls out on our street. When we got home, the girls had all disappeared. I don't know where they went. Our world, it has changed. And deep in Africa, the church and the world, we have a crisis that we cannot even begin to imagine. The HIV-AIDS crisis is beyond our imagination. Do you know that the age, the average age of people in, in Africa has dropped into its 20s because everybody else is dying? The parents are all dying. And we are living, leaving an entire civilization of children to raise children. Older siblings trying to raise their younger brothers and sisters We have pastors who are taking in huge numbers of children and trying to feed them and take care of them in their own homes. And more and more children are now being left parentless. Our world has changed. The face of missions has changed. It's not what it used to be. We are faced with the challenges of our world today. And we are challenged by what God asks us. You see, he asks us, what are you going to do about it? God is telling us that he needs more missionaries. He needs more missionaries in Fort Wayne. He needs missionaries in Detroit and Chicago and the large cities of America. He needs missionaries who are willing to say, I will go anywhere in this world, God. And God is still calling people today, just as he called us, just to serve him many years ago. He is calling people to take hope out into our dying world. A world... That is asking us a thousand questions.
commands of how to grow. Make yourself at home, woman and man. Walk the length of the land. Scale the mountains. Run the rivers. Drink from the springs. Let your free will wander down the pathways of the garden. Hope 
the courtroom and in the broken home In the seminaries and the cyber highways In the alleys of the homeless and the hungry In the shack settlements and the compounds On the farms where the soil is hard and dry In the streets where the grieving mothers cry Where the A's open stare up at the stars Where the cat gets pound on the sail wall Through the coal mine towns and the factories In the ghettos and the prisons and the cemeteries
mine. Send me. I don't know about you, but I feel like I need to respond to the Father this morning and say whatever you want from me, Lord. Here am I. And this is a little out of the ordinary of how we normally do our prayer time, but we're going to move into our prayer time. But I'm going to go down and pray at this altar this morning. And if you just feel like you could pray and say, God, here am I. Why don't you come down? Let's have a time of prayer around the altar. I want to ask Norm Munt to come down and sit on the front row. We want to anoint him. He's going to have surgery this week. If there are other needs, come and pray. But if your heart is as mine this morning, if you want to say, here am I, let's just go to the Father this morning in prayer. Pour out our lives as living sacrifices to our Father. Here am I.